Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. Yeah, we, we decided to do a series, I decided to do a series on Easter uh, since we had a couple weeks left uh, after we finished Philippians, and I decided to do it from an Old Testament perspective because uh, Jesus actually thought of the work he accomplished on the cross as an exodus, and uh, so the lens through which we're to understand what Jesus did on the cross is through uh, these stories that are laid out in the book of Exodus, and so... Uh, they really open up uh, the story of salvation, what Jesus did for us when we understand them and know them. And so uh, we're going to be looking at Exodus 14 tonight. And the background of this passage is that uh, God had made a promise to a people. He had said uh, to Abraham first and all his descendants, like, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to use your family to bless the world, to bring salvation to the world. And Uh, The book of Genesis chronicles the life of this family as they grow and uh, eventually they're enslaved. They become a huge nation and they are enslaved in Egypt uh, for 400 some years. And so it's it's looking pretty bleak for this idea that God has chosen this people and he's going to use them to save the world. And then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God calls Moses. And he says, you're going to be the one who I'm going to use uh, to save this people. My my promise stands. The promise that I made still stands about how I'm going to save the world. And God sends these plagues to Egypt. And the culmination of the plagues is the Passover, which we looked at last week, where uh, it was the last straw. God uh, definitively acted on behalf of his people so that they could go free. And the Pharaoh finally says, leave, please, get out of here. And as we come up on this passage, the Pharaoh has changed his mind. He said, go. And once they go, he's like, oh, wait a minute, never mind. And he starts chasing them down. And so at the beginning of this passage, uh, Israel is coming up on the Red Sea. And the chariots of Pharaoh are coming back, coming onto them from behind. And that's where we pick up. So kind of a long passage tonight. So stay with me. Uh, 14, Exodus 14, 10 through 31. Just try to ignore the random screaming. <laughs> when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let me pray. Uh, Father, as we come now to this text, uh, we ask for your guidance and making sense of it to us because it's old and different. And we pray for your spirit's work to help it to change our hearts uh, so that we might be the people you made us to be. Uh, guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the big word here in this passage in the book of Exodus and the big word of Easter is salvation. And it's a word that we don't, to modern people, feels a little uncomfortable, right? Like the idea that you need to be saved. And it makes us uncomfortable because I think we think like, all right, saved? Like saved from what? What do I need? Like really? I think I'm okay. Why do I need to be saved? Uh, but salvation is the theme of the whole Bible. The whole Bible is about how God can keep going with this world that he created even though his people have turned against him even though everything that was glorious and great and peaceful is sad and broken and so that's the story of the bible and salvation is the main thing going on in the bible and so i want us to look at salvation the idea of salvation tonight as we think about the exodus as we think about celebrating easter this past weekend and in this passage i want to look at three questions about salvation. And the first is, what do, they, what do these people need to be saved from? And the second question is, how are they saved? And finally, why does it work? And so those are three things. First of all, what, 
does Israel, God's people, what do we need to be saved from? And if you look at this passage from a surface kind of level, you would look at it and say, like, they need to be saved from slavery in Egypt, right? Like, they're enslaved, they've been enslaved for centuries in Egypt. They need to be saved from that. But I want us to see in this passage that there's actually something deeper than that. And we can see it in verses 11 and 12 as the people complain to Moses. And they say, is it because there's no, like, they've just been led out of Egypt miraculously through this great work of God, but they face adversity and they immediately say, is it because there are no graves that you, you just came, you brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? And then they say something really interesting. They say, didn't we tell you to leave us alone so that we could serve the Egyptians? Which is a lie, right? Like, these are, at this point, delusional people. Like, they never said, like, God said he was going to set them free, and they said, let's go. Uh, and now they're saying, like, didn't, didn't we tell you that, like, we wanted to serve the Egyptians? Uh, and what they're showing is what their real problem is. And it's not that they were, their problem was never that they were stuck in Egypt, really. Their problem is that they're actively avoiding life with God. Uh, God's saving them, and they're like, no thanks, slavery please. They're choosing it. Because it's what they know. Life with God at this point seems really uncertain, right? Like they're staring at a big sea, and there's chariots coming up on them, and they can't control what's going to happen. Uh, but I want us to think about what they should have said. Like, what should these people have said in this moment? They should have said something like, well, God has accomplished ten plagues to set us free from Pharaoh up to this point. Like, and he's been guiding us with a cloud. Maybe he can do something to save us here, right? Maybe he can send something else to help us. And instead, they immediately go to, let's go back to Egypt. At least we knew what we were doing there. And that's what I want us to see. The idea of salvation will not make sense to you if you can't identify with these people. With this idea that our problem isn't, ju- our problem isn't just that we're enslaved, it's that we actively choose to be enslaved. Uh, another way of putting that is that our problem isn't our messed up circumstances, but our problem is our messed up hearts. And, you know, you may say, like, oh, I don't really get that. I don't agree with that. And I just want you to think about, like, some of the things we do. Like, have you ever said, done something that you knew was a mistake? You knew it was wrong or you knew it was a mistake, and then you said, I'll never do that again. And then you did it again. Right? There's something wrong with our heart. Like, there's something wrong with us when we do that kind of thing. Or maybe you say, like, you know, I've made, you know, this relationship mistake. I'm never going to make that relationship mistake again. And then we say we, we do. Or, you know, maybe you say something like, you know, my, like my obsession with grades and performance has been taking over my life and making me really anxious. This semester is going to be different. I'm going to approach everything differently. And then it stays the same, right? All these things that we say we're going to do and we don't have the ability to do. And the point is, you're always thinking about salvation. Like you're, we're always looking for something or someone to save it. Like all of us have a life strategy right now about like how things are going to get better for us, what's going to make us complete. 
And the Bible would call that worship. It would say these are the things that you worship, the things you live for, the things you look to to be secure and at peace and for everything to be right. So I wonder what is it for you? What are you looking for to save you? And can it deliver? You know, can it save me ultimately? Or is it just something that's helping me cope right now and feel like a little bit more control than what I really have? And uh, this idea is encapsulated in this great quote from C.S. Lewis's little essay called The Weight of Glory. If you've never read The Weight of Glory, you really should. It's short. You could read it in a, little, in a sitting, and it's really great. And he says this in that little essay. He says... It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, which are all these ways we try to save ourselves, uh, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see what he's saying there with that image of the child making mud pies in a slum? He's saying that's what we're like when we turn to things like drink and sex and ambition and grades and money and performance and status and success because something so much greater is offered to us, but we say, like, no thanks, I like my mud. You know, holiday at the sea, this is familiar to me. And it, it kind of is working for me. Uh, in Exodus, God's people are being saved from life apart from him, which is a life, they would choose life apart from him every time, not because it's better. Life apart from God is not better, but it feels like we're in control. It feels familiar and like we have some control of our destiny. And they understand something that we desperately need to understand in, in their rejection of God is that it's either serving those things, you're either serving money, status, comfort, whatever, or you're serving God, but the one thing you can't do is serve nothing. Like, no one serves nothing. It's just not possible. We're all looking for something. We all look to something for our source of life. And that's living for it. That's worshiping it. Um, and so the, this Israelite mentality is, I can go back. Like, let's go back to Egypt. Life won't be perfect, but I can work and I'll know what's coming the next day. I'll probably be fed. And that feels somewhat secure to me. me meanwhile, if I serve God, like, I don't know where he's going to take me. He's not obligated to tell me what he's up to in my life. In spite of this promise that God is continually fulfilling, which is that he's going to bless them. Uh, they should want God, but instead they want the life that they know. They want the life where they feel like, well, life's not great, but at least I feel like I'm in the driver's seat, kind of. Okay? So we need to see ourselves in these people, right? Like, isn't this our story? Isn't this why we don't give up more of our life over to God? Because some things just seem a lot more secure than him and seem like we can control him more than him. Uh, this is why we need to be saved. Because we resist the God who made us. We actively try to find salvation in things that cannot save us ultimately. Okay, so that's why we need to be saved. But 
I want to look now at how are they saved? How are these people saved? And specifically, they're saved, and we are saved by a decisive act of God. I hope you notice in the story that God does everything for them. God does it all. And so much so that in verse 14, it actually says that, right? The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Like, the pe- they don't do anything to save themselves. Uh, God puts this cloud in between them and the Egyptian army with darkness on the Egyptian side and light on the Israel side. And it's like he's pro- like, it's like me like pushing my kids out the door when we're trying to get somewhere. I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like, it's dark there and light there. Which way do you think you should go? Because uh, God, God knows they won't go unless he does it for them. Uh, he uses Moses to part the sea so that they can walk across on dry land. So it's like darkness, light. Oh, by the way, the sea has opened up. And there's a path for you. It's the only direction you're able to go. And go, and then he closes it back up behind them because God knows they'll, they'll probably want to go back too. Like he creates an actual barrier between their old life and their new life. And amazingly, all they do, because all they can do is walk, they just walk across on dry land. And at this point, it would be interesting to say, like, well, this is a nice story, but it sounds like a myth, right? A lot of people think that. And what I want us to see about this story and the possibility of it being a myth is that no myth would ever make its own people look this bad. Like, if you were making this up, you wouldn't be like, and we all didn't believe it. And we like said we wanted to go back to Egypt, right? You wouldn't say that. And the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter is similar. Like in the resurrection accounts, all the disciples are cowards and they, they don't believe it. Like they're not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They distance themselves from Jesus even as he saves them. Uh, no one would make it. Like if you were making up this story, you wouldn't make yourself look this bad. You just need to see that this is something totally different from every other religion. Like God doesn't provide a path to salvation for us in the Bible. He actually does everything to save us, to bring us to himself. Um, a lot of times when people talk about salvation and this idea of being saved by God, they use the illustration of drowning, right? And they say, like, it's like you were, you know, you're drowning and God, you know, you're flailing in the water and you're drowning. That's, that's who we all are. And God throws out the little, like, round floaty thing to save you. And all you have to do is grab it. Kind of a nice illustration, but it's not true according to the Bible. Like the biblical account is that like you're dead at the bottom of the ocean, and somehow God scubas down and brings you up and somehow resuscitates you. You see the difference? We contribute nothing to our salvation because God is so good that He does it all. Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because what, if, if that's the way that God saves us, it means we can't lose our salvation. Like, if you are saved, you know, if you're like me, you have a horrible week and you wonder, like, am I, is it possible that, like, I don't know God? Is he, is he far from me? I don't feel him. And this is saying, no, it's not possible that God would save you and then do everything to save you and then back off of that. 
whereas if it's on you to grab that raft or something, then you could say, well, did I grab it? I don't know. It's hard to say whether I grabbed it or not. Am I saved? This says you cannot lose what God has done everything to give you. Uh, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that God does it all? And the main thing I think it means is that we can stop earning our way to God. This God saves messed up people. Like, these are really not great people that he saves. And we are really not great people that he saves. And he doesn't wait until our, we get our act together to save us. He saves us so that we can have new life. And if you've been around RUF a while, then you've probably heard me say that we tend to relate to God as if he's our dentist. You guys, maybe you've heard me say that before. Like, think about going to the, I go to the dentist every six months. It's on my calendar. And when I see the appointment on my calendar, like two weeks out, I think, oh crap, I need to start flossing. Like, I haven't been flossing for five and a half months, and I need to do, like, six months' worth of flossing in two weeks so that I can show up at my appointment and look good for my dentist. And, my, you know, the dentist is always like, you've been flossing? And I'm like, yeah, for the last two weeks, you know, the last two days. Uh, and they can obviously tell the difference between that. So it's kind of this big joke. But, you know, my goal in going to the dentist is, like, I want to show her I don't actually need her. Like, I want to clean up my act before I go to her so I don't feel the shame and the embarrassment and have to go back to get a cavity filled to have my teeth actually cleaned and worked on. Like, I want to just tell her, like, I don't need you. See? Totally clean. Didn't need this appointment. Thanks for it anyway, though. Do you see how that's how we approach God? Like, I want to... I think, like, I've got some issues in my life. I'm going to sort them out. And then I'm going to come to God. I'm going to get serious about my faith when I do that. Right? That's probably what he wants. He wants me to clean up my act, and then, and then we'll see. But in this story, we see a God who saves people in the midst of their filth, in the midst of their just screwed up hearts. That's who he saves. The point of a dentist is to clean, get your teeth cleaned. The point of God is to save to make us new. And what that means, if that's how God works, if that's what salvation is about, then that means we can be honest about what we struggle with. You know, that's something we want RUF to be about, is to be a place where we can be vulnerable with one another because our salvation doesn't hinge on us having it together. It's not like I have to call into question, like, am I a Christian because I struggle? You know, am I a Christian because I'm depressed? Or am I a Christian because, like, sexual sin is kind of taken over my life. We can be honest about what we struggle with because God's salvation gives us the freedom to do that. Uh, I heard a Christian counselor once say, he said, you'll never grow in the areas that somebody else doesn't know about. I'll say that again. You'll never grow in the areas that somebody else doesn't know about. We all have those areas, I think, right? And we don't grow in them, because how could we? No one else knows. There's no one with us in it. There's no way for us to even admit them, except if this gospel is true. If God's salvation doesn't hinge on us having it together. 
you see how good how good this news is. Uh, and it also means that we can just love people that it's not natural for us to love, because it evens the playing field. You know, you're not like we're all screwed. You're not I, like you're screwed up, but you're not more screwed up than me. And that means we can love each other. Okay. So uh, I want to look now in closing at why does it work, okay? So that's how he saves us, but why does it work? And what I hope you'll see is that it works because Moses steps in. Like, all through Exodus, God is saving a people, but he's working through a man. He's working through Moses. Like, Moses is the one, like, God, God's dealing with Moses on behalf of this people. Like, Moses is the one who lifts up the staff, and the sea parts. And that for us is a picture of how God really saves. He uses someone on behalf of the people. And in our case, it's Jesus that steps in. You know, for all through Exodus, Moses is stepping in on behalf of God's people so that he can save them. And for us, like what it's pointing to is the better Moses, Jesus. Jesus steps in on behalf of God's people and he accomplishes the decisive act that saves us. He accomplishes it himself. That's the cross. So we celebrated this past weekend. And on the cross, what I hope, like, picture, I want you to picture, like, did you picture this story as we read it? If you pictured it, what you would see is the waves coming in on the enemies of God and them all suffocating to death in the Red Sea. Imagine the chaos. Imagine the panic going over this whole army as the sea overtakes them, as they gasp for air and none come. As you look at the cross, I hope you'll see the Son of God himself gasping for air in panic like an enemy of God so that we can be saved. Like that's, that's the length that God went to get you. Like this is the pursuit of God that it goes so far that God himself would become man and become cursed. That he would take on the full experience of being an enemy of God because he wanted, you know, screwed up us. He wanted, can't get their act together, us. He wanted, uh, let's go back to Egypt, us. He wanted us forever, and so he did it. Like, he got us as he gasped for air, not only as he gasped for air and died, but as he rose again. You know, what we celebrated on Easter. Today, Jesus is alive. Like, Jesus has holes in his hands. He's got nail marks, but he's alive eternally to step in for you and me every time, you know, when we think, like, I did, I did another horrible thing. Could God love me? And the answer, because Jesus steps in, is yes, he can. And yes, he does. Like, 
what other God is like that? Like, what other salvation system is anything like that? All other gods, all other things we live for will enslave and kill us, but Jesus is killed. And now he lives to step in for us. If you allow that to sink into your heart, you will be so different. Your life will be so much different and better. It doesn't mean, like, you'll still be, have those moments where you're staring down the Red Sea wondering, how am I going to make it through this? But you'll be with the one you were made for. Uh, the more you allow this truth to sink into your heart, the more it'll be a delight to serve him. The more everything will be better and the more free you will be. True freedom. Freedom to live like the way you were made to live. Freedom to be with the one who made you himself. So let me close in praying that God would work in those ways uh, to draw us to himself. So let's, let's pray. Father, we are so much like these Israelites who all the time say, let's go back to Egypt. At least we had food there. At least we knew what was coming there. Uh, when you offer us so much more, we thank you that you've conquered death and sin and overcome our hard hearts. We're thankful that you're alive today and with us. We pray uh, that our hearts would be transformed by your love, uh, by the story of salvation that you worked out in history on our behalf. Draw us nearer to you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.